You're listening to Wolf in Tune, and this is Richard Wolfie Wolf. I am honored to have as my guest today, Dr. Constance Scharf. She's an expert on addiction recovery and in using music and meditation, among other techniques, to improve treatment outcomes. She's a science research chair for Rock to Recovery, which is an amazing organization that's helped a lot of people all across the country. Dr. Scharf is also co-author of the Amazon.com best-selling book, Ending Addiction for Good. That sounds appropriate. And also she wrote an award-winning poetry book called Meeting God at Midnight. Welcome, Dr. Scharf. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I'm happy to call you Dr. Scharf. You're not a medical doctor. You're a, a PhD. Is that I am is? a PhD. That is correct. Right. And I've had a few PhDs here before, and some of them don't like to be called like Dr. Glenn Fox or Dr. Frank D.S., but you don't mind. I love it. I went to college a long time to earn those letters. It's good for us, too, because it makes us look, you know, more credible when we have a doctor <laughs> on, the, on the podcast. So thank you for allowing me to use that. Very good. Speaking of which, by the way, this interesting uh, title, Meeting God at Midnight, uh, we'll circle back to that. Sure. What did you get your PhD in? So, yeah, so I study transformative studies, and uh, it is the study of change. How does change occur? And, um, you know, that could be change in a business. It could be, you know, organizational development. It could be environmental change and, and climate change. Uh, I look specifically in, in my research at uh, the, the change that occurs when someone is actively using, actively in their addiction um, versus in recovery, because there isn't really a greater psycho-spiritual change to me than that, than that transition from active addiction to recovery. So this is on a psychological level, on a neurological level. What are you dealing with? Well, it's a transdisciplinary field, so we take from all of those different fields. It's not siloed. So we, we work with uh, religion and spirituality. We work with psychology. We work with neuroscience. We work with biomedicine. We work with complementary medicine and pull to try to answer questions that, have, that are real-world problems with real-world solutions. So what drew you to that subject of addiction and recovery? Well, I've been... Uh, sober for over 20 years and back when i was in graduate school uh, individuals were coming back from iraq and afghanistan from the wars there and they were trying to get sober and were not able to not only were they not able to get sober but they were killing themselves in really high numbers numbers that have uh, unfortunately been maintained even you know to this day and I also was, although I hadn't been in combat, I was very depressed from uh, early childhood trauma. And I was looking around at these you know, individuals who, who weren't making it, and I was depressed. I didn't get sober to be depressed, and I thought, you know, there has to be better treatment than what we're getting. And uh, that's I changed everything I was doing in graduate school and dove into this and have been involved in it ever since because there are really good complementary therapies that uh, people have access to. And, and I want to make sure that people know that they're there. Right. So you were depressed probably before you got sober as well, right? Yeah, I, I think depression is one of those illnesses that comes and goes, right? Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Um, 
I've had, you know, at times very good treatment for it, at times, you know, not as good treatment or it's been treatment resistant. Um, for me, I really think that depression is actually um, a symptom of trauma and not necessarily its own disorder. So I don't think I have depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. I think that anxiety and depressions are, are, are manifestations of, of post-traumatic stress. So were you able to overcome your depression, you think? Oh, yeah. And then, it, you know, and then it comes back, right? I, I think that um, with a lot of uh, mental illnesses that there is, you know, um, a sort of wave-like progression to it. So, you know, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. I, I think that for me, I can, um, I see it coming mm -hmm. very clearly now mm -hmm. and can do a lot of work to head it off. I also mm -hmm. do a lot of maintenance work um, on myself to uh, keep uh, from having uh, symptoms of depression and, and really to work on the underlying roots of the trauma that I experienced. And I think that that is probably what keeps the depression at bay is that when I look at those underlying roots of trauma that and overcome that work through that, um, then depression becomes less and less a part of my life. Well, you mentioned maintenance work. And I think that maintenance work is you know, very, very important, um, you know, practice and consistency. Can you share with us uh, any of your techniques for maintaining sanity or equilibrium, relatively speaking? Well, I think it's it's really about about having a life that we want to get out of bed for, right? A life worth living. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't have problems, but I... Um, in the field of complementary medicine, you know, complementary and alternative practices, I always try everything out on myself because I'm really looking for, as a researcher, activities that have a high payoff with very little or no uh, negative consequence, right? So, for example, I work with a, an organization called Rock to Recovery and it's a music-based program. And we go into treatment facilities and write and record songs with individuals who um, are, you know, in treatment for mental health issues, addiction issues, um, eating disorders, trauma, so on and so forth. And one of the things about writing a song is, or playing music and singing, really, is what's the downside, right? Uh, let's look at the negative part of the, of the intervention first. We might not finish the song. The song might, quote unquote, not be very good. Like maybe we're not going to win a Grammy for it. Although the there song may could be, suck. It could totally blow, right? But there could still be therapeutic value in that. You know, we had a group of teenagers who wanted to write a song about pizza. And they wrote a song basically, you know, how much they love pizza, but also about the pizza that they were served at lunch really wasn't that good. And they took notice of that, right? So, okay, well, there's no no, no, I, I don't know, monetary value to a song like that, right? It's not gonna, it's not gonna win any awards or anything. It's not gonna sell a million copies. But what it does is it gives them a therapeutic voice, right? Hey, I can speak back to authority and say, you know what, we really love pizza and this wasn't substandard, guys. Mm -hmm. And we pay a lot of money to be here and I'd like some pizza that, you know, isn't underdone or overdone or has anchovies or whatever the complaint about the pizza was. So you know, maybe we have someone who doesn't participate in the group. So there, there's no 
negative consequence. Interesting. To having a music intervention, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, so uh, what? I, I fell asleep in the corner and, and, and didn't participate and get no outcome. But the positive side of music, the positive side of singing and playing music, as opposed to listening, listening has different responses. When I play music and sing, my entire brain lights up, right? If we look at it neurologically. Now, you know, and and anyone listening knows that when we sing along to a song that we like, say we've had a terrible day, we're in the car, we have our own carpool karaoke, right? A song we love comes on the radio and we sing along to that. We feel better. This is a, this is a, a proven, you know, experience that most people have had. That's a neurological response. And so what we do with music interventions is we play on that neurological response. Because when we play music and sing, you know, play an instrument, beat a drum, whatever, and sing, we our brain dumps uh, serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. And the whole brain starts, it gets to work. And that makes us happier, right? Oxytocin is called mm-hmm. the love hormone because it's mm-hmm. what we feel when we're in love. It's what we feel when we bond with a child after childbirth. And so we feel better. That is therapeutically important in an addiction treatment setting or in a mental health setting, for example. And that's why people like karaoke, right? It makes them feel better. Or singing it, in the, singing in the shower. Or... Singing in the shower. Yeah. And one of the beautiful things, you know, we have people, we work with non-musicians. Rock to Recovery works with non-musicians. So we have people who have never played a guitar before or keyboards before. And we have people who have, or, or, or haven't played in, you know, 20 years and want to reconnect with it. And the beautiful thing is your brain has no idea if you play well or if you play badly. It only cares that you play. It doesn't matter if you sing well or if you sing quote unquote badly. It doesn't matter if you're on key, if you understand pitch. It only knows that you're singing. And that is what changes people's lives. You're talking about on a chemical level. I'm talking about on a chemical level, yes. Right. And also on a on a um, an electrical level, right? Because right. our brain impulses are, are made up essentially of electricity. Also, when I say the brain lights up, the whole brain works when we're playing music and singing mm-hmm. as opposed to different parts of the brain mm-hmm. in different activities. Right. Um, and so when you have someone who, for example, is going through withdrawal is what we call dope sick, and they come into a session and they write a song and they sing it and they play, even if they just have a shaker. I mean, some of our people will have an egg shaker or a tambourine. They, because their brains were not producing the chemicals that are necessary for happiness at a high enough level, they leave high. Remember when we're sitting in the car and we sing a song, we get a, we get a little uplift sure. because our brains are, are biochemically working at a better level than someone who say in early addiction treatment, they actually leave high. And so we've given them an experience of first of all, getting high naturally, but they'll invariably say, I don't feel dope sick anymore. I feel better. And that keeps them in treatment longer. We, every single week, we get a note from someone, an email, a letter, a text saying, I was going to leave treatment, 
and I didn't because I wanted to come to Rock to Recovery. And we know that outcomes are better for people who stay in treatment longer. So there's all sorts of upsides to complementary therapies and in most cases, very little downside. And so that's really what we're looking for in, in terms of these treatments. And of course, I try them out on myself, right? I'm like, oh, you know, I went to a rock to recovery session. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that because you sound like Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde, Dr. Schaff <laughs> or the Nutty Professor, if you saw that movie. Sure, um, of course. He, he experimented on himself. Sure, well, because <laughs> I'm, al I'm also working with things, you know, unlike, you know, the Hulk, right? Um, we're, we're talking about interventions that, that have basically no downside to them. So so what did you do? You wrote a song, you, you went into a group of people with it. How did you experiment on yourself? Well, you know, so if I want to know how does, what kinds of effects does acupuncture have? What kinds of effects does med meditation have? I try them. So I was very interested in, in 12-step programs, there's the 11th step, talks about prayer and meditation, but it doesn't give any guidance beyond that. Right. And with my trauma history, I found meditation in the classical sense, seated on the floor, close your eyes, clear your mind, I found that impossible. Because when as soon as I would close my eyes, the trauma symptoms would come up, right? The hypervigilance, the anxiety, the dissociation, and, and I couldn't I couldn't meditate. We hear this complaint consistently with people in addiction treatment, right? We're talking about people in the first 30 days of recovery. And they're like, sit down and and not <laughs> and try mm -hmm. to clear my mind. They're like, that's it's just not an option. It's, it's hard not... enough when you're sober. You can imagine well, when what you're it's sober. It's and hard you, enough. And, and you don't have co-occurring disorders and your skin isn't crawling and you're not sick. Um, so what we, you know, what we do, what I did with meditation is I started traveling. I, I worked it for a, a treatment facility that said, go out and find the best practices, go anywhere in the world you want, work with any researcher you want. So I started looking at different kinds of meditation and they all have benefits and, and disadvantages and they work differently or they're att attractive to different populations. So one of the things that I found um, is that breath work, um, an active breathing, it really comes out of yoga, right? Active right. breathing right. is very attractive to people in addiction treatment settings when you say this is the meditation that we're going to do, more so than other forms of meditation. And and the meditation I'm talking about is is a simple activated meditation. It's Breathing through the mouth, it's a deep breath into the stomach, into the chest, and mm -hmm. then out for two beats, right? Mm -hmm. So it's... <gasps> Wait a second. So it's in, inhale two beats and out two beats? Mm -hmm. So it's inhale into the belly through mm -hmm. the mouth. Right. Inhale into the chest mm -hmm. through the mouth. Mm -hmm. And then exhale mm -hmm. out, out the mouth. And you count to two when you exhale. You just want it to be even, right? Inhaling and exhaling even. So you could do uh -huh. it faster, uh -huh. you know, in, in, out, in, in, out. Ah, or okay. you could do it in, in, out, depending on what kind of outcomes you want, right? And do you play music while this is going on? Rock to Recovery plays music because Rock to Recovery plays music with everything. I, I think that we have um, 
some definite advantages um, that we see with music. It engages people. But one of the beautiful things about this activated uh, meditation work is that the expectation is so small. Lay on the ground. Make an effort at the breathing. Listen to the music. And if you can't, it's okay. The idea that they don't have to clear their mind, the idea that they can have their eyes open or closed as is comfortable for them. The idea of, oh, I just have to breathe Mm -hmm. is accessible. Mm -hmm. And then as they get more recovery, they can stick with that kind of, of, of activated meditation. They can try other forms of meditation, right? Uh, Mindfulness, for example, really getting someone to know where they are and orient them to the present moment has very good results with people with trauma. So I was at a treatment facility uh, once and it was, I heard the suggestion, put your feet on the floor. Well, I like to sit with my feet tucked up under me and I'm ready to pounce and ready to go and, and, but it disconnects me. Wait a second, right now you're sitting with your feet under you? Oh yeah, yeah. That must hurt, that sounds painful. No, no, I love it. I mean, just, you know, people are comfortable with different things. But when I put, so now I'll put my feet on the floor and take a breath in and I'm much more connected to this place. And with with someone with trauma, that's important because the trauma is intruding and a different time is intruding. And there's very often dissociation from the present. So if I teach someone, put your feet on the floor, take a deep orienting breath. You know, what are what is something that you can see? What is something that you can smell? What is something that you can hear? What is something that you can feel? It helps us to know that whatever we're afraid of is not in this moment. So meditation, choosing the right form of meditation for the individual, the group and the circumstance is is critically important and so that when i say you know i experiment on myself right you know when i when i would try to do that sort of closed eye you know clear your mind meditation all the trauma came flooding back in and i was like okay so this isn't necessarily good for people like me i need something that's accessible in a different way right i'm curious to know the music that's played for instance, in the breath work, so it's sure. in, in, out. So you have that rhythm, right? Juk, juk, do, right? So is the music to that rhythm? I've heard people do that, actually, compose yeah, so music. Yes, very, so very often it is. Um, and the uh, practitioner, you know, whoever's leading the, the session will make a playlist ahead of the session with a specific goal in mind. Right. So do we want this to be relaxing? Do we want this? You know, is this a group I've worked with for a while and want to push them? Um, Is this um, like when I do a private session, they always put really hard rock because I like that and I respond to that with teens. We'll have a lot more um, beats. We'll have a lot more dance music, EDM. Uh, We'll have a lot more of. you know, contemporary artists of, of, you know, rap and hip hop. And, and, and that will be, um, specifically chosen to engage that population. You know, we want, we want people to, if they like the music that they're listening to, 
if it isn't foreign to them, right? If I, if I take classical music and I throw it into a, a, a group of 15 year olds who have, you know, probably no musical training, they're just going to turn off to it and right. be like, it's weird. You know, but if I put something that we know they like listening to, that's of course, you know, appropriate lyrically and appropriate rhythmically, then um, we can have a lot, a lot more um, engagement. I'd be curious to hear what kind of hip hop is played. Not the breathworks is understandable, but for instance, for mindfulness meditation, uh, I'd be really curious to hear how that would work. Yeah, and, and I don't know that it would necessarily go through the whole meditation. I mean, with mindfulness, you'd probably be a lot more, a lot more spoken, you know, spoken word and a lot less music. You mean spoken word for guided, guided meditation? Well, or even, even in uh, some, some forms of mindfulness meditation would also be guided. I, they would fit into both categories. Um, yeah, I think it's really about the beats it would be it would be less hip-hop it'd be more edm it'd be more electronic dance music so that you've got some sort of beat that the kids you know the young people would would be attracted to mm -hmm. so you mentioned all these great interior drugs that we have dopamine and serotonin mm -hmm. and there was another one that sounded oxytocin. like oxytocin so are the are those being secreted when people are meditating to music also? So, no, not in the same ways. So it's the playing music and singing that gets the brain to dump those those neurochemicals. And and you see this, people didn't know that, but in, in traditional healing, right, in shamanism and, and, and similar, when you have um, trance, when you have, you know, drum circle, when you have those kinds of rituals people would sit around and stomp and clap and sing for hours and that would activate not only a ritual time and space but also it gets those chemicals going in our brains so it's it's the playing music and singing that is so important to that and you see that in you know in in native american um tradition um across most of actually North and South America, um, this idea of drumming and dancing and singing together. And that's what creates it. Um, meditation does something a, a little bit different. Um, and when you put them together, then you have, well, you have, you have a, a profound experience. Yeah. I mean, with meditation, in similar in a lot of ways, maybe neurologically speaking, and neurologically speaking is similar also. I think it strengthens mm -hmm. the cerebellum. I think both disciplines do, the connection between the cerebral cortex and the cerebellum, those connections are strengthened. So there are similarities. But on a psychological and even physical level, in meditation you can really integrate your mind, body, and feeling similarly to the way it's integrated in music. Now that you may not have the same serotonin and dopamine being secreted, but yet the experience of being in harmony, mind, body, and feeling, this this um, you know physical cognition is similar to music, and that's why I think so many musicians are, are there are many musicians that feel comfortable with certain kinds of meditation is because they're used to that experience, their hunger for that same 
feeling of being whole, of being integrated, of having this harmony that they get when they perform music, to get that in, in life, you know, when you're not on stage. I think that's probably true. Um, the, and, I, and I say that because I work with musicians. So at Rock to Recovery, everyone is a musician except for me. Um, I, I pull in, you know, the other sides of it, the, the, the research uh, aspects and the, the science behind what they do. Um, but yeah, I would say that's true. The populations that we work with, however, I think that they're too early in their own practice and their own process uh, to have the kinds of, of benefits that you're talking about. I think that those come from a longer term practice. We're trying to introduce activities that will improve their chances of staying in recovery. Because one of the things that we know from the mm -hmm. opioid crisis is that, you know, the number of overdoses and deaths that we've had that I think are going to be shocking when um, for 2020 when not overshadowed by COVID. I think when people come out of treatment, it is the time if they're going to relapse, they're more likely to relapse right out of treatment than at other times. But when they do, the odds of overdosing are up. And the mm. odds of dying are up because they've detoxed already and they're no longer accustomed, physically accustomed to using the amount of drugs that they were using before, but their brain thinks that they do. So, for example, I used to drink two liters or more of hard liquor a day when I was drinking. Now, I haven't had a drink in over 20 years, but my brain still thinks I drink that much. And so it would take me very little time to die. Um, if I didn't recover. And so if I didn't come back from that relapse back into treatment. So we're trying to give tools to make recovery comfortable enough that it is worth staying in um, until the individual has tools. But I think, you know, you're correct in saying once someone has a practice or if someone comes from a background where they, uh, do have music or meditation or you know that those that they do feed off of each other and you know one of the things we've seen in clinical settings is that any one of these interventions therapies treatments whatever you want to call them on their own is not very effective okay. so if you if you have addiction or mental illness and you quote unquote just meditate or just perform songs or just do whatever your odds of recovery are, are very low, right? And we know this in music because uh, we lose musicians, wonderful musicians to addiction and mental illness all the time. If music was curative on its own, then they wouldn't be dying. Good point. But something happens when we combine these different interventions, they become more than the sum of their parts. And that is the critical part in treatment is to find okay what do we put together so that people have this synergistic experience and they're like wow suddenly this is better you know and there's a neurological component that goes with it but it's really about breaking those old habits that people have and getting them to try and do things new so you guys are using music to keep people longer in 
recovery so that they'll have better chances. It's one of the main positive outcomes of Rock to Recovery in particular, musical interventions in general, is that if they are fun, if they are engaging, if they have this, um, if they're playing music and singing so that the whole brain is engaged and we get the neurological outcome that we're looking for, people tell us all the time, that's the reason I stayed. That's the reason I stayed. And we know that people who stay in treatment longer have better outcomes. So yes, that is something that we're trying to do, but there are other things that music does. So for example, music allows us to ex express feelings, ideas, um, emotions that we couldn't necessarily express through the spoken word that I can't necessarily say. So for example, when I, you know, was first in therapy, I, I literally couldn't speak about the traumas that I had endured. I, I would open my mouth and no words would come out. I mm. literally just could not speak about them, but I could write about them or I could paint about them or I could write a song. And we find that in Rock to Recovery a lot is that people will through, either through the music that is chosen because they even if they can't play the music, we they all, everyone is a musician, you know, who, who, work, who runs these sessions. So you say, I want it to sound like this, and that's what they play. And so, so whether it's country or hip hop or, or rock or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. That's the vibe, we reggae, whatever. That's the vibe we give it. And then they get to pour out what they want in the lyrics. So for example, we work, we have a, a contract with the Department of Defense and work with the Air Force Wounded Warrior Project, AFW2. And we had a woman in the program who said um, she wanted to write a, a spoken word, basically a, a rap lyric, but we, we it, it comes out more as, as beat poetry. But she wanted to write a spoken word and she wrote about how she had planned to kill herself the night before, how she planned to shoot herself the night before and didn't because she was gonna come to Rock to Recovery. And so in, in the song, she wrote this, this breathtaking poem and that was included. And, and with AFW too, we perform in front of the whole care event and the generals come out to the Air Force base and sit right in the front row and see what we're doing. And she got up there and she talked about how she wanted to kill herself. She wasn't able to express that in any other way. Right. But she could through song. And then because that happens, and that happens consistently, because that happens, we're then able to, as part of a therapeutic team, pass that off and say, hey, you know, it, in the case of AFW2, we work heavily with chaplains. Um, or if we're in an addiction treatment center with the clinical team, we're like, hey, psychotherapist, hey, chaplain, hey, rabbi, this person, here's what they've shared. And now there's a grounds for being able to, to talk about it and to bring in other resources um, that, may, that may be important. What I wanna say about that though, is that one of the things that we do in Rock to Recovery is it isn't just the doom and gloom. It isn't just, oh, I can't get this out any other way. When that happens, and it happens with some frequency, we certainly focus on that. Um, but in our songs, those are, those are the verses. 
in our songs, we really try to focus most of the time on having the chorus, right? The refrain, the part that we sing over and over again, the part that becomes the earworm. We try to make that happy. So in this case with the, with the woman who, uh, the veteran who talked about her suicidal ideation, the chorus of the song was something like, everything is going to be all right. So in other words, she's going, I'm going to kill myself, but everything's going to be all right. Well, what we do is we do two things, is we give them the opportunity to express whatever darkness there is, but we do that in the verses. We get them additional resources based on that. But the part that the group leaves singing... Is the happy part. Is the happy part. That becomes the refrain. That becomes the mantra, right? Because what you repeat to yourself, right? If you repeat to yourself, I want to kill myself, I want to kill myself... That's going to get your, that's going to become your mantra. Right. If everything is going to be all right, is what you're repeating. It helps to push against that suicidal ideation. Right. I mean, that sounds like that Kendrick Lamar song, We Gonna Be All Right. Uh, mm -hmm. The same, same theory. So mm -hmm. what's, what's interesting is that you guys, if music cares for instance, focuses on musicians, yes. you guys focus on non-musicians. Yes. And you use music as healing, as therapy. Yes. And I like what you said, that you recognize that even though you're using music as a curative, music alone is not enough. Correct. And you, you mentioned about meditation alone. I, on that one, I kind of disagree. I agree that music alone is not enough, especially for musicians, because mm -hmm. it's no longer a therapy. It's partly therapeutic but it's also involved in a complexity of different relationships. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that meditation practice and mindfulness practice, and I know in my case and I know other people, I think that can, that does have a potential of being alone uh, enough because it just is a revolution in consciousness. It's so transformative the way you see yourself, the way you see the world, the way you feel about the world. It's, it can be, I think, um, transformative on its own. I think that makes an assumption that you're working with a healthy ah, consciousness Yes, it does. <laughs> it definitely does. Okay. So I'm talking about people right. who, are, who are coming with mental health problems, with addiction problems, with trauma problems, eating disorders. Gotcha. Gotcha. And what we have, and, and listen, I, I completely agree with you about the value of meditation. What we have to do with, with individuals who are not starting from, you know, starting, you know, 40 yards back from the starting line you and I are starting with is to say, okay, what are the types of meditation practices that are going to be accessible so that they can begin to build right. a practice. Right, that makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I, I, I think, too, one of the things I like about, about putting music to meditation is that it, for this population, it helps to make it, easier it, in meditation one of the things it, yoga as well what we're supposed to do is take our, ourselves where we are if i can't do the meditation it's okay 
And that's very hard, especially for people with substance abuse problems. It's just, I'm not good at this. I don't want to do it. If I'm not immediately the expert, I don't want to do it. And um, music helps to make that accessible. And breath, help, you know, the activated meditations, walking meditation, for example, helps to make this more accessible so that people will choose to do it. I, I went uh, to a, a meditation class very early in my recovery. Maybe I had, I don't know, a year and a half or two years. And I went to... Um, to actually to Guru Mai's meditation center in Los Angeles. And, you know, I was there with, I don't know, 50, 100 people, a bunch of people sitting on the floor. And the gentleman who was uh, teaching the meditation, he walked out, you know, from whatever back room he was in, walked right up to me and he's like, no. And he put me in a chair and he wrapped me in a blanket and made sure we were supposed to all bring heavy socks. I brought heavy socks, uh, you know, and, and he, you know, and, and he's like, now you can do this. And I could. And so what he did is he recognized that if I was going to be sitting on the floor and, you know, barefoot and my feet would get cold and, and I, I needed a certain way of being protected and being in a chair and whatnot. Um, again, my feet on the floor instead of tucked up under me. Um, to be able to, to, to access that. And it really made an impression on me that I was like, oh, this, there are particular ways of doing this that are more accessible to different people. And that's what we want to find. And once we find that and a practice begins, then you're absolutely right. Meditation can take us to places that are, are really only dreamed of, um, without it. And also, I mean, it's incontrovertible that music can help people get into a concentrated, calm, composed state of mind, which is on the spectrum of meditation. And obviously it's working for you guys um, in your mission, and it works for large parts of the populations that are that try or are interested in, in meditation, to, or some parts of it, to use music. But... It's also good to, to maintain the perspective that music is a wide spectrum and it is a vehicle, it's a bridge to a place, but it's not the place. Sometimes I think of it as like a parachute, you know, you're, you're parachuting out of a plane, music is the, the parachute, but once you land, you can't walk with the parachute. You need to walk on your own two feet. And with music... You, your consciousness is contained, it's lashed to the agenda of the composer or the band or whatever. It's their agenda, and, and that's where your consciousness is stuck. So at some point, you break out of that into whatever is happening in your experience, in your environment, in your awareness. And for that, you, you need silence. Uh, maybe. I mean, when you when you first began what you were saying, I thought immediately of a researcher out of Utah, Massimiliano Frani. Um, and uh, he was a concert pianist and then had an injury to one of his hands and could not perform at that level anymore. And he uses music um, for sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. Right? So there is this very, as you were saying, very good understanding that music can put us into different states, different um, 
brainwave states. And that's reasonably well understood. And I think what you're saying is true that when we're listening to someone else's music, that we are either using it to get to, it's not, it is their agenda, but it's also, I pick it to get to the place that I wanna go, right? So there's some wonderful research about heavy metal uh, music and, and about how angry music helps us to release pent up feelings of anger. But I think when you're composing your own music, writing your own songs, writing your own, playing your own music and just jamming, right? Or just, you know, singing whatever comes to mind that it can take you to a, a, a similar place as meditation and that silence isn't necessarily the only path. There's this idea of um, ecstatic experience versus meditative experience. So trance dance and um, shaking medicine and, and those sorts of experiences, like Sufis, right? If you see the Sufi dancers. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I do mean to interrupt you. I don't, I don't say that, that silence is the only path. I mean, the path is open, so it's sound and the soundless are part of the path. Right, and, and I'm, I'm showing the, what, that other, what that sound path, because you talked about the silence path, and so, so what is the sound path? And it is that ecstatic, it is that, you know, the, the trance, it is that where music is very much a part of it. And I think that, that both of those take us to the same, they end up in the same place. And, and the question for me then becomes, what is more accessible to the individual? And there are people who very much resonate with the silence. And there are other people who get lost there or can't access that. And those are people who might therefore do better with music. Yeah, no, it's, it's not either or, it's either and. It's music and silence. You know, it's, it's everything. It's um, ultimately it's selfless awareness. And awareness includes everything that exists mm. and that doesn't exist beyond perception and non-perception, beyond being and non-being. Um, but the point is very well taken that for the general population, this, the strategies that you're using, using music as therapy, is beautiful. It's helping people. It's... Uh, aiding people in recovering from from the hell of addiction, mm. and so what you're doing with music is absolutely noteworthy and uh, amazing and fantastic, and you're actually saving people's lives. <laughs> and I mean, you you can't do better than that. Well, we hope we hope that we you know give them tools that allow people a choice um, because there's. It, Addiction is such a hopeless place. You know, when I'm using, I cannot stop. And I don't have a choice about that, you know, and I have been graced with, you know, sobriety for a very long time. But, you know, I still remember, you know, people be like, well, you shouldn't drink or it's not good for you or you're going to lose this. Or I was dying at 22 years old and I could not put the drink down. I just could not do it. And so... You know, when people are in treatment for 
these kinds of, of disorders, whether it's addiction or, or, or mental health issues or trauma. We just want to give them the supportive tools that will help them to be able to get through those first, you know, three or four months that are so difficult um, to get through where it's not one day at a time, right? You hear that all the time, but it, it, it literally can be like, could I just not drink this hour? Could I get through the next 15 minutes? And one of the things we know about cravings is they usually last about 15 to 20 minutes if we can divert your attention to something else. Hmm. You know, but if I sit there and think about, I want to drink, I want to drink, I want to drink, I want to drink, well, then it just amplifies it and eventually I'm going to pick up. But if I can divert you and get your brain to be, to think about something else, because this is one of the things we know about addiction is that it isn't really or isn't only the substance that is the problem. Because if I, you know, bathe my, my brain in whatever chemical, cocaine, uh, alcohol, opioids, doesn't make any difference. If I bathe my brain in that and become, and become addicted, if the drug was the problem, when we separate you from the drug, when we detox you, the problem should go away, right? Because it's no longer in your system. Mm -hmm. And what we find is invariably with addiction, um, the pro the person gets worse. What after we detox them, then they get a little, uh, you know, uh, amped up and and anxious and really, you know, off kilter. And that's that's the very dangerous period. And what we what we have to do there is, we know that that happens because it isn't just, it isn't just the substance that is the problem. It's the drug seeking behavior. It's the thinking about it all the time. So I wake up and the first thing I do is I reach under the bed for the bottle that I dropped the night before to see if there's anything in it. And then I go to the, I'm starting to get the shake. So I go to the refrigerator and I drink a beer in the refrigerator and I drink a beer in the hallway and I, and I drink a beer in the shower and I drink a beer in the car, right? So that I can go to work, right? That it's that drug seeking behavior and constantly thinking about when am I going to get the next drink? <laughs> when am I going to get the next drug? That's what builds the neural pathways, the feedback loop that is addiction that we get trapped on. And so music and meditation and uh, breath work, you know, yogic breathing and acupuncture and somatics and all of these other complementary forms of interventions, they help break up that thought process. And music is one of the really good ones. Breath work as well, because it's very accessible for this population. It breaks up that drug-seeking thought pattern. Hmm. And that is what gives us the outcome, for example, of I want to stay in treatment longer. Because it helps us to break up those thought patterns. So I'm not thinking about using constantly. If we, do, if we have those interventions throughout the day enough then we can really start to build new neurological processes, new neural pathways, and the old ones, at least a little bit, get cannibalized to build that. So we see a new brain development going on by having these kinds of interventions. So if music breaks up that, that feedback loop, and that makes a lot of sense for non-musicians, it doesn't seem to break it up for musicians. I mean, you think about all the whether it's Tom Petty or Elvis Presley or Prince, and the list mm -hmm. is endless, Juice World endless. is endless. 
and this is another thing that we've been talking about that it that has different effects on non-musicians than it has on musicians i guess so musicians are already playing with maybe what we call a stack deck to begin with so the brains of musicians we know are already larger than the brains of non-musicians and better connected between the hemispheres I didn't know larger. Thank you, but I didn't know that. I, 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 yeah, all my, all my guys love to, when we talk at Rock to Recovery, they're like, say that again, doctor, say <laughs> yeah. that again. Yeah. Like, yes, your brain is probably larger in mass than mine is, but that doesn't necessarily help them. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love to tease. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so they're, they're, they're large. They tend to be larger in mass and they tend to be better connected between the hemispheres. But they can be overrid, overridden, right, by by substance use, and and this is what I'm saying in terms of um, you know what the research bears out in terms of music alone mm-hmm. is not um, enough. Is not enough. But they still, you know, a musician still will have the same, you know, when they pick up the guitar, right? Let's say it's you know, three o'clock in the afternoon and you haven't played guitar all day and you pick up the guitar or the harp or whatever you play and you play, you're still going to have the release of, of these chemicals and you're still going to feel better for doing that. Is that on its own enough to compensate for substance abuse? No, it's not. Um, and that's what we see in, in the deaths of our celebra- our musical celebrities. Right. So I just have a couple of questions. Sure. I wanted to, so you mentioned that everybody who's, I guess, teaching or, or leading groups is a musician in Rock to Recovery, right? Correct. Everybody is a musician in recovery. And, oh, they are also in recovery. Both, yes. Okay, so they're musicians that are in recovery. What about meditation teachers? Are they also musicians in recovery? N- no, they're trained meditation teachers who are also in recovery. Half of half of our med actually two thirds of our meditation teachers are uh, are also musicians, um, but if but a few of them are not, because we want them to have they don't they don't have to have as good of musical training to to write a song in an hour with six to twelve non musicians, you have to be a really good musician, <laughs> like you yeah. have to have some real skills there, which to choose a soundtrack a playlist. For meditation, that's a different skill set. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, do you ever hire musicians that you see they they are in recovery? That means they're not recovered yet. Is that no, no? They're they uh, everybody is at least one year clean and sober. Okay. As opposed to actively, when we say in recovery or recovered, as opposed to actively using, but everyone, uh, there, our minimum requirement is one year of sobriety. So it's something I've wondered about. I, I, the impression I get is if you've recovered, like let's say from alcoholism and you're mm-hmm. sober, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you're, you're graced with sobriety. Mm-hmm. Let's say you were you know, addicted to whiskey. Let's say that was your drink. Mm-hmm. Is it true that you're not supposed to drink, let's say, a glass of wine because that could lead back to, to whiskey? Yeah, alcohol is alcohol. Beer, wine, whiskey... It's all the same. What about jokes about people walking into bars? Can you? What about them? <laughs> so somebody tells you a joke. There was a minister, a priest, and a rabbit, and they walked into a bar. Right, right. Damn Is that okay? Correct. Is yeah. that okay? Sure. Listen, I, I, 
I work with musicians. We, you know, we go into establishments that have alcohol there. And, and um, I mean, we do put on a sober concert every year because we want people, half of the people in the audience are from, are, are, it's a day trip from rehab. And so we want people to know that sobriety is fun and cool and you can enjoy music and you can go to sober shows and, and whatnot. But I go to concerts and, and, you know, there's liquor there and it just... If you have recovered, it just doesn't attract me. If someone says, you want a drink? I'm, no, thank you. You know, um, when I, I was invited uh, in, I guess it was 19, to a, a um, St. Patrick's Day party. And everybody knew that, you know, I hadn't had a drink in a long time. And, and, and they were so obsessed with, um, it was very, it was very kind that, you know, they wanted to know, we have these non-alcoholic drinks and these non-alcoholic drinks and these non-alcoholic drinks, because I was the only one there who didn't drink. And I was like, it's very kind of you. I actually am perfectly satisfied with water. Like, it's just what I want. So, um, yeah, that's the beautiful thing about recovery. It's not that I couldn't have a relapse or couldn't slip, but that I do this maintenance work. And, you know, a lot of it is service. Like, I, I work with people who are have lost everything or have, you know, are losing their lives or their jobs or their homes because they can't stop using. And so it gives me a tremendous sense of gratitude and it makes me want to do the work that I need to do to continue to have what I have. Um, I'm really comfortable in my sobriety and I, you know, I didn't expect to live beyond 25. And now, you know, I can see 50 approaching so for me, this is great. Everything's gravy. Every day of my life is is unexpected. And I do really cool things. I work with rock stars. I travel the world teaching. And I help wherever I can to save any life that I can and help people to live a better quality of life. You know, and if you want our help, we're happy to do it. And if you don't, you get to make that decision too. What better life could a person want it's like you know i i i was just invited to uh, when the pandemic started i was in bali for a conference and as soon as you know i get vaccinated and and enough you know people are vaccinated and lockdown start to abate i've been invited to ecuador to work with orphans mm. what do i have to complain about and there's nothing that I could find in the in the bottom of a bottle or in a needle or in a powder or in a whatever that was even close to the life that I have now. This is fantastic. You know? Well, um, it has been fantastic learning from you. Oh, thank you. About um, how you use music as therapy and healing and relief and um, how the brain works in certain situations. And I think you guys are doing amazing work Thank with you. what you do with addiction, which is uh, one of the four horsemen of the musical apocalypse. <laughs> for real. Well, thank you very much for having me on. And thank you. Let's stay in touch. Let's stay in tune. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Well, if you ever want to find us, of course, you've got our numbers, but also anyone listening can find us at rock2recovery.org.
rocktorecovery.org. Yeah. And do you want to talk about your uh, social media handles at all? It's, it's all Rock to Recovery. Okay. I, the letter's T-O, not the number two. So Rock to Recovery. We're on the Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and the web. And and most of the, you know, if you ask a question, most of it comes to me. So we would love for you all to reach out. We also have free public facing programs right now because of the pandemic. It's all online. It's all on our website. Um, get help. We have music, we have meditation, reach out, become part of our community or someone else's, but get the help that you need. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I thank everybody for listening, all my loyal followers or somebody that may have just stumbled upon this podcast. Thank you very much. We appreciate ratings, comments, and uh, visits to our Instagram page, which is Wolf in Tune. And I'd also like to remind you about my book, In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness, which is the very first book to deal with this topic of accessing your skills and sensibilities for music and transferring them to a meditation and mindfulness practice. And now I want to thank my illustrious co-producer at The Hannah Bowers. And uh, you can see a new feature that we have on our Wolf and Tune Instagram, which is Hannah Bowers doing a demonstration of breathwork to music. And it's just the beginning. There will also be tutorials in stretches and other things. And until next time, I hope that you stay up in a higher octave and lets you and I stay in tune.